In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was in seminary, a couple of guys in my class, my cohort, worked together to set up a kind of um, regular afternoon meal and debrief. You know, I think it was originally at the end of each month, or maybe we decided, let's do it every Friday afternoon. And then we realized, like, wait a minute, let's do this monthly instead of every Friday afternoon. The, the idea was appealing to all of us. Let's find a place. Let's talk over the events of the week um, and have fellowship that way. But when the word got out that the location that was chosen was a brewery, some of the brothers expressed um, concern. Not everyone felt comfortable with the idea of a group of pastors in training going to have two or three or however many beers they could knock back for lunch on a Friday, uh, especially if it was close enough to our school, it's close enough to the seminary, um, is that going to be a good look for the seminary? Are we going to reflect well on our school? Is this the kind of thing that we should be doing anyway, right, because we are fresh off of um, the qualifications for elders? Um, and one of them is that uh, in order to be a pastor, you have to be above reproach. And the thing is, you don't always know when you have caused reproach for yourself. So some guys were like, is this a good idea? Is this, is this giving us the best platform to still remain qualified for this thing that we're training for? Right? we still got like two more years of school at this point. We don't want to just qualify ourselves now. Most had no problem with the concept. Right? After all, we had agreed that drinking to inebriation was out of the question. So, what was the big deal? That might be what you're thinking now as you hear this too. I see it on some of your faces. What's the big deal? Why not just let those guys go do their thing at Chipotle and we'll all go to the brewery? It's Minneapolis, right? There's no shortage of places to eat. Because in the church, we are called to love each other by giving up our right to do what we want to do in gray areas and love our brothers and sisters by not causing them to stumble if they have a weaker conscience than us. Let's get into this a little bit. As residents of the United States, we are some of the most privileged people to ever live. Not because of our wealth, not, sorry, not just because of our wealth, not just because of our opportunities, what I want to zero in on this morning is because of the freedoms we enjoy that we take for granted. We take for granted things that in former times only the most wealthy, the most powerful, the most influential, the most secure people were able to enjoy. Freedom, however, has its limits. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. When you look at some of the freedoms that are enshrined into law, there are things that you can do that you really shouldn't. Either because they make you less useful to your neighbor, or because by taking such liberties, you sin against your neighbor, and you sin against God. You can drink to drunkenness legally. You can get pretty drunk, right? You can't get in a car and drive yourself somewhere. But you can get pretty plowed. But that doesn't mean you should. 
because it's a sin. And it makes you less useful to your neighbor. And by your neighbor, I mean your spouse, your kids, other people in your life. Now, for some of you out there, it is illegal to actually get drunk, so eyes on you, kids. Recently, uh, on social media, I've seen our governor, Tim Walls, boasting about how Minnesota is going to be a firewall for reproductive freedoms. And what he means by reproductive freedoms is the ability to kill a baby in the womb for convenience sake. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And yet there are areas in which the laws of our society and the law of God even, well, they don't really say anything in particular. There's room here to kind of do one thing or do this or do another. There are areas in which our conduct as citizens and our conduct as Christians is neither commanded nor prohibited by God. Within this domain, though, we're not at liberty to simply do whatever we please in the church simply because God hasn't said something specific about it. The old, hey, you can't do that. Well, you, God didn't say I couldn't, right? That's the line I think we all use if, we, if, you have, if you grew up with siblings. Mom said to do this. Mom didn't say I couldn't. Here's the deal, though, friends. In the church, our own freedom is not the deciding factor. It might be with regard to your life as an American citizen, but you live in two kingdoms. You're a citizen of this country, but you're also a citizen of heaven. And that supersedes your American citizenship. Paul says, you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. How could using our freedom cause another to stumble? How does does that work? Well, here's what was going on in the Corinthian church at the time. There were all of these temples in Corinth. Corinth was a big city. Corinth was like a, a Chicago, maybe. Or maybe even like in Minneapolis. There were many temples within which food would be sacrificed to idols, some kind of statue or something, right? As part of their culture. And even among those who were not Christians, it's likely the case that hardly anyone was really truly devoutly a worshiper of whatever idol this was. This was just part of their cultural heritage that they did. Either as... And, and then they would um, eat that meat, either as part of that ceremony or after, after the ceremony was done, it would be taken to a market and then sold. Apparently, there were some within the Christian congregation at Corinth who were secure enough in their knowledge of the Scriptures and who were clinging so tightly to the Gospel that they felt no qualms about eating this meat because, like Paul says, he acknowledges in his letter, we know that there's one God, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, and so these like idols, gods or whatever, they're not actually real. What people are worshiping is demons, and we're not worshiping the demons. So, I mean, you can eat the food. You don't gain anything by eating the food. You don't lose anything by not eating this this food, this meat. But he still says, you must be careful, though, that your freedom does not cause another with a weaker conscience to stumble. A weaker conscience is one that doesn't let a person participate in something because they think that that thing is a sin. If your conscience is weak about consuming alcohol, let's go back to that example, uh, period, in the church, like in, in, the, in the denominational environment that I was in when I was in seminary, um, 
drinking was, you know, there, there were a lot of guys in this Reformed Baptist world for whom any kind of recreational alcohol consumption, not even to get drunk, but just like having a beer, right? That was a problem for them. Now compare this to Concordia St. Louis, where on Friday afternoon, I think weekly, they have a keg with the students and the professors. And they just kind of unwind after the week, right? Both of these institutions doing the same thing, training men for ministry in the church. But this is a disputable matter here. And some with weaker consciences about that issue decide we're not going to do that at all because we believe it's a sin. Even though God's word doesn't say drinking alcohol, period, is a sin. I mean, after all, Jesus turned a bunch of jugs of water into what at that wedding at Cana in Galilee? Wine. And it was the best wine they had ever tasted. So there are a lot of factors involved in this. It's not clear. It's not a clear-cut thing, black and white. So, back to Paul and the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Paul says, not all believers know this. Not all believers have matured to the point where they can eat this stuff freely. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real because of maybe their former association, or maybe they became a Christian like last week. And before that, they were in the temple every day, participating in these ceremonies. And so we're going to tell them, yeah, you keep on doing that, and you can be a Christian and worship Jesus. There's no God but him. But yeah, whatever, go back to the temple and eat stuff. They'd, be, they'd look at you like, uh, what do you, how can I still do this if I'm a believer now, right? So for various reasons, there were believers who thought when they were eating food that has been offered to idols, they were thinking that they were worshiping real gods. And their consciences were violated. They did something they knew was wrong. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to ask you, because I just know that you all know what a violated conscience feels like. You know. <laughs> sometimes, it, 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 sometimes it comes immediately. Like, like, uh, like when you were a kid, maybe, and you touched a hot stove. Ah! Right? You feel that immediately. Sometimes it takes a day or a week. Sometimes it takes five or ten years, twenty years. You think back to that kid you teased in high school. Paul says, if others see you with your superior knowledge, he's kind of using this term ironically, right? If they see you eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience? Because they're going to see you, a mature Christian believer, strong in the faith, clinging to the gospel, able to talk about what the Lord has done for you, and you're going and doing these things that they feel are wrong. And they're probably going to end up following you, going against their conscience. When that happens, when you, in your Christian liberty, lead a brother or sister with a more tender conscience, a weaker conscience, into something that they feel is wrong, and you've sinned against Christ. That's the point Paul is making. What's, what's most important is not how much you know, how mature intellectually you are in the truths of the faith, What matters is love. We've got to recognize that freedom doesn't just happen. This freedom you have as a Christian didn't just appear out of nowhere. 
And it's the same with our freedoms as citizens of this country, too. Let's think about that for a second. Someone has got to define freedoms, right? The founding fathers of the United States of America. Somebody's got to accomplish that freedom. Somebody's then got to stand on the wall and defend it. And I know some of you in this room, as I look out right now, you've served in that way. We honor these people in certain ways, especially when it comes to certain civil holidays and remembrances, right? Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Independence Day. The same, though, brothers and sisters, is true about the freedom you have from sin and from death and from the devil. Your freedom from the guilt and power of sin, your inheritance of eternal life in a perfect body, in a perfect place forever, the victory over Satan that you possess was defined accomplished, and is preserved by the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified for you and was raised on the third day for you. In the same letter to the Corinthian believers, a little bit earlier, Paul says this to them. He says, don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Beloved in the Lord, my friends, guests here today who are used to thinking of of ourselves with a certain amount of autonomy, this is hard for us because of the (laughs) country in which we live and the time in which we live. You don't belong to yourself if Jesus has redeemed you. If Jesus has bought you with his blood, you are not your own. God bought you with a high price, Paul says to them, so you must honor God with your body. Your life is his possession. It's not just yours. And when it comes to disagreements among believers about what's okay to do and what's not, you honor the Lord who bought you with his life by not insisting on your own way and telling everybody else to deal with it. You honor him by laying down your rights and protecting the conscience of the weaker believer for a time because all Christians are built up into full maturity by the Holy Spirit who works in the church, daily forgiving sins, renewing our consciences, building us all into full stature. But that's how that building happens in the church, with love. Paul started this reading by saying love builds up. Love constructs this verb for builds up, it has like an outward aspect. Love does something to you, but also to the people around you. It's a high tide that raises all ships. Knowledge just puffs up. It just makes you think you're a bigger deal than you actually are. The Lord Jesus Christ gave up all of his rights in love to save us. That's the gospel, the foundation of the church, and that's how the church continues to be built, age after age, generation to generation. And on this day, on this great day of celebration, this kind of homecoming we have here on Pancake Sunday, may we remember that our personal knowledge just puffs us up individually, but it's your love for the people next to you and for the people in front of you and behind you in this church and for the people who are not here. It's your love for them that builds us all up. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.